let's get into Mark chapter 9. We're going to be studying the, um, the account of the disciples going up on the Mount of Transfiguration and having a wonderful time with Jesus up on the Mount and then coming back down into the valleys and just experiencing, you know, not so much a trial on their part, but witnessing another person's trial and getting to exercise faith um, in, in helping a man who desperately needed the touch of the Lord. And, you know, it's been said that uh, the Christian life is a land of hills and valleys. And boy, how many of you know that to be true, that, you know, from the mountaintops come the valleys? And if you've ever been part of a retreat or, uh, or a camp, a church camp or something like that, Man, aren't those wonderful times at the retreat with the Lord? You know, I, I know you guys just had um, uh, a men's retreat out at the, the, the ranch, you know, which gets me drooling a little bit, you know, but I try to hold back. But, um, you know, know that you men just spent time at the feet of Jesus and, and beheld him in his glory and wonderful, wonderful times. You know, times up on the mountain with the Lord are, there are times where, like C.S. Lewis put it in the Silver Chair book in the Chronicles of Narnia. He said that up here on the mountain, uh, the air is clear, you know, and there's less distractions and, and things, things seem to all fit together. But when you go down into the valley, it's, it's, there's chaos and distraction. And man, how when we get away with the Lord and spend time with Jesus, um, man, there's just clarity and there's perspective and the air almost even seems cleaner. And, and you know, for some of us, it's multiple times a week that we go up on the mountain with the Lord. I mean, a Sunday morning might be a mountaintop experience for you as you spend time with Jesus or a Wednesday night. But then, you know, here comes Monday morning, you know, and here comes Wednesday morning. And, and those types of times um, are times that the Lord wants us to, to continue on in the things that we had learned and been assured of up on the mountain. And so uh, here we see Jesus uh, taking the disciples up the mountain. Let's just pray over the study. Uh, Father, we do just, um, we eagerly await to hear your word for us today. And, and Lord, two services so often can be a, a struggle because we don't want to copy a work that you did in the first service. Or, you know, we, we want to be sensitive to you, Lord. Whatever you have that's new and fresh uh, for these specific people, Lord, we just want to hear from you. Um, it's such a, a wonderful thing to get to come up on the mountain here a Sunday morning and just dwell in your presence and to just, um, just have you teach us your word. And so just encourage our hearts and equip us uh, just for the work that you have for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, well, let's just start in verse 1. He said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God present with power. And just already in verse 1, um, you know, people think that that means that, you know, certain disciples would never die, you know, or never um, die until the rapture happened or something like that. In fact, there was even a legend, the book of John tells us, that, um, that John would never die. And it went around for quite a while. It says in the scriptures that that legend is still going to this day. So perhaps that legend is, is still happening today. But, um, but here we know that within a couple verses, hello, Jack Bauer, what? Um, within, within a couple verses, one verse actually, Jesus is going to take the disciples up on the mountain. Three of these disciples are going to get to see this very thing. They're going to get to see the kingdom of God come in power as they watch Jesus be transfigured. And so in verse two, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain apart by themselves. 
and he was transfigured before them. So um, Jesus kind of, he took his, what they, you know, what I consider his inner circle of disciples, Peter, James, and John, and they went up on a, on a really high mountain. And we know that in the last chapter, they were in Caesarea Philippi, and it was there, you know, I don't know how many of you have been to Israel, but uh, Caesarea Philippi is in northern Israel, and it's um, just a beautiful land of, of springs and creeks, and oh, it's just, it's really like a little paradise there. And as you're there, you're sitting there, and you're you read the story about uh, Jesus asking the question, who do men say that I am? And, you know, some of them say uh, Elijah, some of them say one of the prophets, you know. Um, and, and Jesus says, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter just nails the, the nail on the head and says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And, and, and speaks forth from, you know, it says flesh and blood didn't reveal this to him, but the, the, the Father in heaven revealed this to him. And Peter just had that wonderful experience of getting pat on the back by Jesus. And, and then there from Caesarea, six days later in northern Israel, they come to Mount Hermon, which is this giant um, snow-covered mountain there in Israel. You know, you're down in the certain parts of Israel and it's arid and dry and certain parts are kind of tropical and jungle-like. But, and then in the north, there's this huge mountain where there's snow skiing and all of that. And so it's really neat to look at this mountain from a distance and just go, I can only imagine the, the spotlight look that was coming off of this mountain on that day during the transfiguration. But uh, they went up on the mountain apart by themselves and he was transfigured before them. And so here we see Jesus uh, going through a metamorphosis. He's, he's transfigured. He's literally... Uh, his um, outsides show what are on his insides, in a sense. You know, it's as if he he took a zipper from the back of his head and unzipped it from the front and laid aside um, the the outward appearance of humanity. And the disciples got to see him in all of his glory and all of his splendor. Um, what I believe is the same way that John saw him in Revelation chapter one, and Daniel also saw this. In fact, if you just flip over there real quick, we can see. Just that description, and, and I believe it's a, a similar, similar to what John also saw years earlier there in verse 13 of Revelation 1. Man, I just love reading these couple of verses um, and just picturing Jesus there in his glorified state. But it just says, In the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet, and girded about the chest with a golden band, his head and hair were white like wool, for some reason, I always picture him having like a white fro here, but I don't know that that's biblical. But, um, and, and white as snow, his eyes are like a flame of fire. And so, you know, looking into Jesus's eyes, you know, there's, there's that uh, ability of, of judgment, a fiery judgment. But at the same time, there's just this warmth and comfort uh, there in his eyes. His feet are like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice is of the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And so, man, I really love that last part, you know, that the boys saw Jesus, like it, it was like going outside and looking at the sun. And we've all done that a time or two. And when I was welding, I'd always have a little fun with my welding hood, you know, and just go out and look directly at the sun and can appreciate that brightness. But, you know, in the same sense, Jesus is just, in his glory, we know in, in the New Jerusalem, there's no need for a, a sun or a moon because the glory of the Lamb is going to light the city. 
Um, and so here he is, you know, he's peeled away his human fl- flesh. He's allowed the disciples to get a glimpse of his glory. And, um, and it's just in contrast to, you know, we know what he looked like as a person just a little bit from like what Isaiah 53 says. And, and, and most of it's just, we can see in his humility that he was just a humble looking dude. You know, Isaiah 53 says that he, that Jesus grew up like a, a tender plant, or like a root out of dry ground. It says that he had no form or comeliness, that, that um, when we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. And so in and of the flesh, you know, it wasn't like Jesus was the, you know, the good looking dude in high school or whatever, that all the ladies were tripping, tripping over, you know, or whatever. But um, there was just a humility a- about him. And um, Philippians says that he took on the form of a man, the form of a humble bondservant. You know, Zechariah 9.9 says that he's just, he was lowly, you know, lowly riding on a a donkey. But Peter, James, and John saw Jesus as they walked up the hill. They walked up with a a very humble man in appearance. And then as he zipped away the the outer um, almost shell of him or whatever, he's transfigured. Um, There's just this incredible glory there. And, and his sun, or his, his uh, countenance is like the sun shining in its strength. And verse 3 just even adds to that, that his clothes just became shining, exceedingly white, like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. And you know, how many of us have read this passage multiple times, you know, and, and sometimes we just do, we get too familiar with the word at times and we don't really think about it. But could you imagine being these three boys at that point, these three disciples? Could you imagine seeing the glory of, of God incarnate there standing on this mountain? I mean, words can, can hardly describe it. And, um, and I can, I just get excited thinking about it to think of Jesus just clothes shining like the sun, whiter than any laundromat could, could, you know, put their bleach on it and put their white cheer or whatever it is that they spread on it and try to get it white. Man, his glory is, is all the more white. Colossians tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. You wonder what God looks like? Well, look at Jesus. He's the image of the invisible God. And later on in Colossians chapter two, it says, in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And so here we see Jesus just kind of showing off there on the mount, just showing the boys, check out my glory here. And as the boys saw Jesus in his glory, I have to say that, man, when we see Jesus in his glory, we're transformed as well. You know, Romans chapter 12, 2 tells us to not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. As we spend time in the scriptures, in, in the presence of God, our mind is renewed and, and our, our bodies, in a sense, are transformed. You know, we're, we're putting on Jesus. We're putting on holiness like Romans 13 tells us that we're to put on Christ in the same way that he took off the flesh and showed us his glory as we spend time in that glory we put on Christ so that we make no provision for the uh, flesh to fulfill its lusts and then the scene just gets even more dramatic in verse 4 as Elijah appears to them and Moses and they began talking with Jesus. So even more, can you imagine being these guys here? Not only are they seeing Jesus in this incredible transfigured state, but I mean, these guys are Jews. And so to be there on the mountain, <laughs> you know, and to have Elijah appear you know, and have Moses appear. I mean, these are like heroes. 
I mean, these were heroes to these guys. And so to just be like, what is going on here? This is incredible. What an honor to be them and to get to be there. But to have Moses there, who's a representation of the, the, uh, of the, the law, and to have Elijah there, a representation of the prophets, and then to also see in between them the, the fulfillment of the two. As Jesus says, these are they that speak of me. The law and the prophets testify of Jesus, and he's the fulfillment of those. No doubt this was an incredible experience, a mountaintop experience, literally, for uh, Peter, James, and John. And Peter just got so excited in verse 5 that he answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. And let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. If it were me, I'd say, and one for Rory. But um, he wasn't thinking ahead. And, uh, but it says that he said those things because he did not know what to say, for they were greatly afraid. Now, Peter was right. You know, he was right. It was good for them to be there. That was a, that's a wonderful place to get to be as Peter. Um, but, you know, he didn't know what to say. And so often when we don't know what to say and we open our mouths, you know, we put our foot in that mouth. Um, it's been said the best way to save face is to keep the bottom half of it shut. And, um, you know, Peter's just like, blah, 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 blah. And John reaches over and just <laughs> uh, tries to get him to be quiet there. But um, nevertheless, I love Peter because he's so roary. You know, <laughs> everything Peter does, I'm like, yep, I would do that. Um, so definitely love that guy. And verse seven, and a cloud came and overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son, hear him. This is my beloved son, hear him. You know, in the, the previous chapter, um, you know, Jesus asked Peter, you know, who do you say that I am? And he said, you are the, uh, the Christ, the son of the living God. And then, you know, he got a little bit of accolade there by Jesus and then quickly thereafter lost his candidacy for Pope by um, telling Jesus that he didn't have to die and having Jesus rebuke him. And, you know, now he's not infallible anymore and all that. And so um, he now is in another place where he hears God say, this is my beloved son, hear him. And he's going, remember guys, when I said that he was the beloved son, you know, kudos for Peter, he's thinking. But, um, but notice he says, hear him. You know, the Lord wants us to hear Jesus. He's the living word. And how often do people no longer listen to God? They've got their opinions about God. They've got their ideas about God, you know, but they don't come to the word and they don't listen to the word and then they don't do the word. And the Lord wants us, man, he, he's so pleased in his son. He wants us to just listen to him. Peter gives an account of this moment when the, the shadow, uh, excuse me, the cloud came and overshadowed the mountain in um, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. He says, For we do not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. You know, here Peter, years later, is just looking back, you know, and probably has a little more of a shake in his voice. Eyewitnesses of his majesty, you know. And um, I just love older people. You know, I love... Um, Specifically, I am so interested in military history and World War II. And my grandpa was a, a bombardier in a B-17 in, in World War II and flew 32 missions. And, and so, man, time in the presence of my grandpa was just paradise for me, you know. And, but as he would tell the stories, I'd just look into his eyes, you know, and I'd look at his hands and I'd go, man, that guy was just eyewitnesses of so much. 
And so how much more, you know, to know Peter and to look into Peter's eyes and just be like, wow, you know, just like John said, you know, our our eyes saw, our hands handled concerning the word of life. These guys saw Jesus in the flesh. And so as, as Peter writes this, he's just fond memories, you know, fond diary memories from Peter's journal about this time. And he said, for he received from God the Father glory and honor when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So Peter's account there. And then back in Mark uh, 9, suddenly, you know, the, the mountaintop experience comes to a close in verse 8. When they looked around and saw no one anymore, but only Jesus with themselves. And so I doubt that it was something that Peter, James, and John were like, ah, it's only Jesus? You know, what about Moses and Elijah, you know? But I think they were just stoked to be with Jesus. I think Jesus was the one that was really glorified in this mountaintop experience. And so, but what a picture though, is uh, Moses and Elijah fade away that, you know, Jesus being the fulfillment, you know, of the law and the prophets, just everything else fades away in the light of Jesus. And, um, and then in verse nine, as they came down from the mountain, he commanded them that they should tell no one the things that they'd seen till the son of man had risen from the dead. So they kept this word to themselves, questioning what the rising from the dead meant. And man, if you study the resurrection, you know that um, Jesus told the disciples time after time after time that uh, they were on their way to Jerusalem and that he was going to be betrayed and um, he was going to be killed. But don't worry, after three days, I'm going to raise from the dead. And he'd tell them that and he'd tell them that and he'd tell them that and they'd kind of ignore and go in one ear and out the other. You know, they were looking for this Messiah to, to take, take out the Romans, you know, and to set up his kingdom there in Jerusalem. And so they, they would kind of ignore him and they wouldn't really understand it. And, um, and so, you know, even when Jesus did raise from the dead and he saw them, you know, they still were confused. They thought they'd seen a ghost. You know, they, they acted like they hadn't even been expecting it, despite all of the, the forewarnings that I'm going to rise from the dead. But and, and so it's just to me, it's kind of humorous that um, they just very quickly move on from the, the issue of Jesus rising from the dead onto asking about Elijah in verse 11. Um, so in verse 11, it says, they asked him saying, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? You know, here Jesus is trying to tell them, you know, Hey, I'm going to rise from the dead. So anyways, about Elijah, you know, is he going to, you know, and he's like, no, no, no. Uh, But anyways, they did ask the question about Elijah and he answered and told them, indeed, Elijah is coming first and restores all things. And how is it written concerning the son of man that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has also come and they did to him whatever they wish as it is written of him. So you know, it was believed that the that Elijah would come before the Messiah. Um, his uh, Malachi chapter four, verse five and six says that I'll send Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. And so, because of this Malachi prophecy. Um, many of the Jews believe Elijah will come before the Messiah, which, yeah, he, he would. And, and there's kind of a dual fulfillment to that prophecy. Uh, one of the fulfillments through the person of John the Baptist, 
If you read Luke chapter 1, just um, verse 17, it says that uh, John the Baptist will go before Jesus in the power and spirit of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So John the Baptist wasn't the resurrected Elijah. In fact, people specifically asked him, hey, are you Elijah? And he said, no. But um, that's kind of one fulfillment of of, uh, the spirit and power of Elijah coming before the Messiah. But then if you read Revelation, there's two witnesses that... um, right before the second coming, are declaring the gospel. And, you know, I believe that one of those guys is Elijah as well. So, um, but then in verse 14 through 21, we have some incredible um, instruction about faith here. It says, and when he came to the disciples, uh, they're, they're coming down off the mountain. And when he came down to the disciples, he saw a great multitude around them and scribes disputing with them. And so the mountaintop experience is over. And as they're walking down from this glorious time with the Lord, you can hear the chatter. You can hear the, the arguing, uh, the discussion going on between the scribes and, uh, and the other disciples. And immediately they saw him. All the people were greatly amazed and running to him, greeted him. So I think they were, they were relieved that Jesus was coming to the rescue uh, to help with the debate, the discussion, the dialogue that they were having with the scribes. It says that they were amazed when they saw him. And I tend to think is a little bit of the, of the Moses type thing. When Moses got to have an appearance of the backside of God, And then he went down the mountain after that experience and he was just glowing and shining. And the the whole neighborhood was freaked out and afraid um, because of the glory that was shining off of Moses. They had to put a veil over his face and he had to cover himself. And so, you know, I think that there there had to be a little bit of glowing from, from the disciples as they were walking down. And they probably just had a big smile on their face after spending that time with Jesus. But they were greatly amazed and they ran to him and greeted him. And he asked the scribes, what are you discussing with them? And then one in the crowd answered and said, Teacher, I brought you my son who has a mute spirit. And wherever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples and they, that they should cast it out, but they could not. And he answered him and said, uh, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. Then they brought him to him. And when he saw him, immediately the spirit convulsed him. And he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming at the mouth. So he asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And often he's thrown him both in the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. So, you know, when I read this, I just have such a heart for this father, such compassion for this father. And even more now that I have a two-year-old little boy, Russell. And um, sometimes he does some of the same things that this little boy was doing. But um, we're working through these issues. No, I'm kidding. Um, But... You know, to read through it and to really understand what this father was experiencing as, as his son, who he loved. You know, he, had, he cared about this boy. He was bringing him to Jesus and to just see him, uh, you know, become rigid, the word says. That word rigid, it speaks of drying up like a raisin, you know, he's rigid. Matthew's gospel says that he suffers from like an epilepsy type of a thing, or, or it can also be translated, he's a lunatic, or he's moonstruck, or he's a maniac, or for those of you high schoolers, uh, 
a synonym is he's a swashbuckler, you know, and so um, for whatever that's worth, you know, he's, he's really going crazy. There's hysteria in this poor little boy. Uh, and so um, the heart of this father is, is desperate for Jesus to touch him. And notice verse 21, since he was a little child, this has been happening. And then I just, uh, I underlined verse 22 where it says, the father comes to Jesus and he, and he says, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And so at this point in this father's faith, you know, he's, he's really questioning the Lord. If you can do anything, you know, it's pretty bad, as you can tell, and it's been happening for years and years and years. And if you can do anything, please help us. And Jesus, you know, his response is that it's not an issue of if I can do anything, I can do it. But the question is right now, do you believe that I can do it? In verse 23, Jesus said to him, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out, and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And man, this verse just hits home for me. And I'm constantly just in my prayer life and in my day-to-day walk, you know, I'm constantly confronted with situations where I want the Lord to help me with my unbelief. You know, I'm a believer, I'm a Christian, I've got a level of faith, but Lord, I want to walk in such a way that if there's anything lacking in my part, if there's anything weak in me, if there's anything in me that's unbelieving or a hindrance to a work that you want to do, um, the Lord, fill my cup up to the top with belief. I want to be known as a man with radical faith for you, not a guy that's just kind of wishy-washy in his faith and, oh Lord, if you can do this and heal this person or, or if you can do this, you know, do this or that. But man, I want to have an extreme faith for the Lord. And so I love how this man cries out with tears, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, help my unbelief. And so I'm so encouraged that there's times when the Lord increases our faith. He increases our belief. Um, You know, the disciples at one point were having a lesson from Jesus on forgiveness. And he said, you know, if your brother sins against you seven times in a day and seven times comes and asks for forgiveness, forgive him. You know, that's huge. That's very huge. In fact, the response of the disciples was, Lord, increase our faith. (laughs) That was their response. It was like, wow, that's a lot of times. And then Jesus throws the 70 times seven card at them, you know, and it's like, Lord, really increase our faith, you know, like they know that in and of themselves, they can't do something as simple as just forgiving uh, their brother that's continually sinning against them. How much more, you know, in, in levels where extreme faith is needed, do we just need to cry out to the Lord and say, Lord, I need more. I need more trust in you. I'm lacking. There's doubt. There's fear. I believe, but help me in my unbelief. And so here the man in Mark 9 asked the Lord for a little bit of turbo trust. And, you know, I believe whatever you want to increase in your life, if it's anything in this physical realm, you know, material possessions, you are selling yourself short if a continual prayer in your heart isn't, help me with my faith, Lord. Help increase my faith, Lord. I want to live all out for you, walking in every promise that you have for me and walking in obedience to what you're asking me to do, no matter what it is, no matter what it'll take to conquer it, Lord. I believe you're calling me to do these things. Help me in my unbelief. Help me in my unbelief. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 says that without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is 
and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And how often do we just do things out of, out of habit, you know, or, um, you know, there's just, there's routine to it. And man, that we ought, that we would do it with faith, that we would believe, Lord, I believe you are, and I believe that you're a rewarder, and I'm diligently seeking you. Help me to walk in belief, Lord. Matthew chapter 9, verse 27, it's kind of a similar account with two blind men. Matthew 9, 27. Um, feel free to, to flip there. These two blind men followed Jesus, crying out, saying, Son of David, have mercy on us. And when he'd come into the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I'm able to do this? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, let it be to you. And their eyes were open. Now there's something in scripture about a direct proportion to the amount of faith that the people of God has and the, the great works that he does. He wants us to ask. He wants us to cry out. He wants us to take huge steps of faith. And, um, and yet in times because of our unbelief, we can limit God. Uh, I don't know if you guys know what oxymorons list, what an oxymoron list is or oxymorons and, you know, um, I know a lot of you are thinking, I can see one oxymoron right up in front of me. But, um, but an oxymoron are two conjoining contradictory terms, such as death benefits, um, tax return, half dead, plastic glasses, drag race, accordion music. Put one in here just for you Prineville guys. Dodge Ram. Dodge Ram. Okay, anyways. But... Um, <laughs> Psalm 78, 41 tells us that they turned back and tempted God and they limited the Holy One of Israel. How is that even possible? How is it possible to limit the creator? You know, how is it possible to, to limit the one who conquered death? Can anything limit him? And yet we know from, from reading about Jesus's time in his hometown of Nazareth, that there was a community there that had become so familiar with Jesus that they didn't want to believe him anymore. You know, they just saw him as that, that, you know, that kid that they knew back in school, you know, and they know that his dad was the carpenter and his mom was Mary and, you know, they knew his, his brothers and sisters, you know, and so why should we believe this guy? Where did he get all these words, you know? And it says that he was not able to do many wonders there because of their unbelief. And then one gospel says, except that he healed a few people, you know, and so I'm like, well, that's still pretty good, you know, but, um, but you know, because of their unbelief, uh, he was quenched from moving radically there. And so are there times in our lives where God is asking us to take great steps of faith, you know, to, to maybe even just something as simple as, as sharing with one person the glorious news of the gospel, you know? Maybe it's something a little bit bigger for, for going to a hospital and, and, and praying for someone's healing. You know, maybe it's something bigger, you know, a quadriplegic, you know, and the Lord is burdening your heart to pray that this person would rise up and walk and and there's doubt there and it hinders what God wants to do. Now, don't get me wrong, in no way am I preaching a health and wealth message here, you know? Um, in fact, if I could just share one quick blip about myself, you know, one of my mountaintop experiences when I was in, was I was 19 years old and I was going to the, the Bible school in Corvallis and um, part of the school was we went to Hungary uh, for two weeks on outreach and then we went to Israel for two weeks. And so just a high point in my life and a high point in my walk with the Lord. And, you know, I was just, just glowing like, like Moses walking down the mountain, you know, when I got back from, from Hungary and from Israel. But within two weeks, 
Um, within two weeks of being back, my father had a stroke and his entire left side of his body was paralyzed. And, um, and so I had to quit the school of ministry that I was going to. And I went to St. Charles Medical Center in Bend and, and the Lord just led to me that my new school of ministry was to, to serve my dad and to help him recover. And so after four months of, of serving with my dad and, and helping him, you know, recover a bit, uh, he had another stroke, which eventually wiped, pretty much wiped out his brain. And, you know, and, and so I'm one that knows that there are times that the Lord uh, chooses not to heal in the physical realm. You know, in fact, uh, the Lord ended up taking my dad home to be with him. And man, is that not the ultimate healing? You know, my dad is up there in his glorified body um, worshiping Jesus. And so in no way am I teaching a health and wealth message or anything like that. But what I am urging us to do is to not be afraid to cry out for healing, you know, when there is a sick person there. All we are to do is, is to, to pray out in faith, and the Lord is the one that knows what's best for that individual. You know, I, I hold to what James says. If there's anyone sick among you, then bring them to the elders and have the elders anoint them with oil and pray for their healing. And, uh, and yet there's times where the Lord, he has a, a better plan through the trials of sickness. And so I, it's something I really wanted to mention in the first service, and I'm like, boy, I hope the first service didn't go away. Like, man, that guy, is, he is all about... Well, anyways, but... Um, <laughs> So, you know, but that we would say, Lord, I sense that you're asking me to do this and I want to walk in obedience. Even if it's, if it's something that's impossible, Lord, I know that it's possible with you. Our prayer should be like this man, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Lord, increase my faith. And if you'll just flip over to Hebrews chapter 11, the whole chapter has been coined the hall of faith. You know, and it's got all these incredible heroes of the faith and the great acts that they did for the Lord. And man, you can read that and be encouraged, um, you know, to take those, those same types of huge leaps of faith for the Lord. But it starts out in the chapter with giving us a, a definition or a, a description of faith, where it says that faith is the substance of things hoped for. It's the substance of things hoped for. And substance speaks of that which has mass and occupies space. And man, when we have, when we're walking in faith, when we're living in faith, then, then there's substance there. Our faith shows that God is a very tangible, physical, touchable uh, a person, a personal God. He's someone who can be grasped. But then it goes on to say that faith is also the evidence of things not seen. And man, how evidence is, it brings the basis for believing the things that we can't see. And you know, a good example is the wind. You know, you can't see the wind, um, but, but you feel it, you know it's there. And um, you know, I went over to Casper to pray about going to Casper and I was sitting in a Jeep and that's some of the most windy country in America. And I'm sitting in a Jeep and this Jeep is just shaking back and forth. I had my video camera and I'm like, honey, this is what Wyoming's like, you know. See that tree over there? It's all the way over to the side, you know. But, um, you know, but I knew that there was something going on outside of my vehicle, you know. And um, in the same manner, man, our faith, it, it, can, it can shake things, you know. Our faith brings something that's, uh, or sh rather shows the evidence of a very tangible, real God. And I love the New Living Translation of Hebrews 11.1. 1. It says, faith is the confidence that what we hope for will actually happen. It gives us assurance about things we cannot see. And so what's, what's incredible about um, exercising faith is that it allows us to have hope and trust during some of the most difficult times in our life. 
hope and trust in the most difficult times in our life. And man, when, I, when my dad first died, I uh, had one probably day of rebellion against God. <laughs> you know, I was leading worship at the Calvary in Lakeview, and um, you know, it was like the first week, I think, after my dad died, and I was like, I'm not going to go lead worship today. I'm going to go fishing, you know. I'm kind of mad at you, God, you know. And so I went up in the woods, and I'm rowing around in a boat, you know, and loaded my boat up. And just after spending that time with the Lord, I was like, I can't stay mad at you, Lord, you know. I was just, I knew, you know, I knew that I had to believe that the word was true, you know, and that God's a loving God, and that he, his plan for my dad was what was best. And I just said, Lord, I believe, you know, help my unbelief. And and, um, and so, uh, you know, that we might exercise huge faith for the Lord. You know, we do it in so many other areas in our life. You know, every single one of us exercises faith. Um, recently, I went to the doctor and uh, caught something funky in Brazil. But, um, <laughs> and, and he, I don't know this guy. My wife has seen him once, you know, and he gives me a prescription for steroids. And I know a lot of you are like, I can tell, you know, you've been taking that a little bit too much. Well, you know. <laughs> But, um, you know, I don't know this guy. I don't really know what steroids do, except that they're illegal in 48 states, you know. And, um, but trust this guy. So I have faith. I'm going to take these pills and, and um, great, you know. Or, you know, I just helped my buddy change his brake pads, you know. And, and I'm like, wow, these are really tiny little things that stop a car going at 65, 70, 55 miles an hour, you know. And, but we put our faith in these tiny little things, you know. And we trust that when I push on this lever, it's going to activate this and that. And it's going to squeeze, uh, you know, my wheels so that they stop moving. And I just trust that. So here we go. Let's strap in and let's go for it. We, you know, we exercise faith in so many areas. Why is it when the Lord says, hey, do this, trust me, you know, we just doubt and we sweat and we fear and we worry and, you know, we decide not to do it. And maybe next time, Lord, and he's like, man, you're missing out. You're missing out on getting to be used by me to, to take the gospel to the land or to bless a brother. And so that we might be quick to walk in obedience to the Lord when we're doubting to ask the Lord for a little bit of help. You know, there's, there's three types of faith in scripture. There's a, a saving faith, you know, that when we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, that his sacrifice on the cross for our sin, you know, it, it, if we believe, then we'll, our sins will be washed away. And Ephesians tells us that it's a free gift, that salvation. All we have to do is just believe. We just have to have faith. And so there's a saving faith for us here today. You know, there's also a growing faith, much like the, you know, the disciples saying, Lord, increase our faith. I know I need to forgive my brother seven times, you know, but Lord, increase my faith, grow my faith. But then I'm just encouraged and I've, I've cried out for this gift a lot, but there's the gift of faith. First Corinthians chapter 12, verse nine tells us that it's one of the gifts of the spirit. It's one of the manifestations of the spirit. And how many times in my life I've just known the Lord was calling me to do something. Yeah, there was fear, but wanting to walk in obedience. And I've just said, Lord, I'm earnestly desiring the best gift right now. Like your word tells me to, I'm earnestly desiring the gift of faith so that I can do what seems impossible. You know, it's been said that the gift of faith is like, um, it's like a, a holy hormone, you know, or it's a spiritual steroid, you know, that it's a, it's a quick trust thrust in the time of need that God gives you when he's saying, do this, believe me in this, do it. And you're shaking a little bit. I don't know if I can. Then Lord, help me, help me to walk 
help me to do it, you know, and, and give me the gift of faith. Manifest your, your spirit through me right now in, in helping me to accomplish this bold task that you're asking me to do. And, um, and I'll tell you, that's something that, um, that I cry out for the Lord so often. Just recently being in, in Brazil, um, you know, we did street outreach in Curitiba on this big walking street, and we set up sound systems, and we did dramas, and, um, and then we would just preach the gospel and give people an opportunity to respond, and we'd see so many people respond, but I knew that I had to get up behind the microphone and start talking. And I just felt so weak every time. Like, Lord, I know you want me to go up behind the microphone and to share, but I'm just, I'm terrified and I don't know what to say. And what am I going to say? And, and they'd be like, Rory, you're on in like 10 seconds. So get up there. And, and I'd get up there and I'd just, help me, Lord. And i just open my mouth and the Lord would just start speaking, you know. But it took me exercising faith to get up there and, and to be bold and to be obedient. And, um, and so often, man, I, I consider the gift of faith to be like a companion gift to the other gifts of the Spirit, you know, because, you know, God perhaps has given you the gift of prophecy, but you're afraid to prophesy, you know, and you need the faith to build, to do it, you know, or the gift of tongues and, and uh, you know, I don't know, uh, you know, or the interpretation of tongues or words of knowledge or whatever. And, and man, so often I'm just like, Lord, could you also give me the gift of faith so that I could just dynamically operate in just everything you want this gift to be? And he's so faithful, man. He doesn't want us walking in, in, in puny faith, you know. He doesn't want our cup to be half full. He wants us to be completely full. And so I just encourage you today, you know, what, what are those things that the Lord wants you to do? You know, what are those things? Maybe already, you know, you're like, man, I know what it is. Maybe it is just reconciling with, with a loved one. Maybe there's a relationship that's just been, it's been... Uh, you know, apart for too long and there needs to be reconciliation. Maybe your marriage is in serious need and you know that the Lord can heal your marriage, but you're doubt, there's doubt there and, and you're in the stage of this father of Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Well, man, I encourage you today. We're just going to give you the opportunity to cry out to the Lord, help me in my unbelief, save my marriage or heal my spouse who has cancer, Lord. Lord, I, I just, I know I'm just supposed to ask. And so I do with just everything within me. I ask you, Lord, I believe that you can do it, you know, or Lord, I know that you're calling me to start a Bible study in my school or, or at my work to, to do a Bible study or to go to this group of people that seem to be persecuting me and to just open my mouth about the gospel. Lord, increase my faith. Maybe even Lord, give me the gift of faith that it could just, you know, I could have that gift, that power there. No, don't sell yourself short, guys. Cry out for, for, um, for that power. And then uh, verse 25 back in Mark says, When Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, Deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him and enter him no more. Then the spirit cried out, convulsed him greatly and came out of him, and he became as one dead, so that many said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and arose. And man, something I just love about this passage is uh, the crowd that at one point had been disputing about this healing, or you know, in a form of healing, um, has been witness to this conversation, a very short conversation. I made it much longer by going to other passages and expounding upon that. But it was a very short conversation between Jesus and this man about, dude, do you have the faith? Lord, I have faith, but wherever I'm weak in, in my faith, and I know you, I know you want, Lord, ugh, give me more faith. Fill my cup with faith. 
And what I love here in verse 25 is it says, Jesus saw that the people came running together at that point. And you know, who knows what that really looked like, but as I read it, man, I just, I feel like it was, these people were also encouraged to have more faith, you know? And instead of just, you know, they've been watching this kid from his youth be demon-possessed and maybe laughed at him a little bit, and it, it made great for arguments and dissertation about delivering people from, you know, but I think that they at this point also, like the father, were encouraged to have great steps of faith. And they came running together uh, to to be a part of um, what Jesus was doing here. And then when Jesus saw them coming and and running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit. And so we're going to have an opportunity today for that. Um, as, as Stuart comes back up and, um, you know, maybe, you know, I've been, I've been praying that the Lord would just give me specifics and just show me just where that need is here in this church in Prineville for the day. And you guys can go ahead and come on up, but, um, but you know what it is, you know, and maybe it's just, it's simple. You just want to be more bold at work or you want to be, you know, you just want to be that person that's not afraid to stand up for Jesus. or you want to be that person that, you know, is not afraid to pray for healings. Uh, you want to be bold in, in standing on the promises of God. And uh, I just want to get, or maybe there's a specific situation in you today. Maybe your, your marriage is floundering and, and you just need prayer. And you know what? We're going to give you the opportunity. We're going to have, as Stuart uh, leads us in worship, we're going to have the, the elders come forward and even the elders' wives if you would like to come. And, and no matter what it is, but man, if you know there's something that you want more faith in, uh, just come and ask for prayer. And, you know, I'm just encouraged by that picture of the people running together. And and I want us to do the same thing. You know, I I want us to run together. And so, you know, as the elders are up here and if if someone comes up for prayer and as you're led, would you just also go and just maybe lay hands on that person and pray for them and and just be there to encourage them and, and the Lord might increase our faith. In Matthew's gospel, he goes on to say, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you'll say to this mountain, be removed, you know? And so, man, even if you have just a little mustard seed size faith, man, Lord, give me at least that much, you know? But multiply it times you, Lord. Multiply it times infinity. And so let's just go ahead and, and Lord, we do just, we pray that you would increase our faith right now. There's so many different people in this room, so many different situations, so many different callings. Lord, I know for me, I've just been crying out that you'd increase my faith, Lord, to just be a servant of you and to be obedient to what you've called me to do. And Lord, I just need, I need more, Lord. Lord, we don't put our faith in faith, but Lord, we put our faith in an omnipotent God. Lord, you're the one who can do even this. Lord, study in Prineville, uh, or Crook County has like 25,000 people, Lord. Would you save the 25,000, Lord? You can do it. We believe it's our desire, Lord. And Ryan's been urging the mission to get out in the county and, and lead people to you, Lord. We believe, Lord, help our unbelief. Lord, you know the situations. And Lord, just pray that you'd move on the hearts to, to be like this father and cry out, maybe even with tears, just, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Do a work that, that would put scoffers to shame. And just as the elders and the elders' wives are coming forward, I also want to give you an opportunity today. Maybe you've never exercised any type of faith at all. And, and in fact, maybe you don't even have a saving faith in your life. You know, the word says that if we believe on the name of Jesus, we'll be saved. And if you believe that, that he died on the cross and that his blood was a, a sacrifice for your sin, and today you just say, Lord, 
Today, I believe, Lord, I ask that you would just wash me anew and create in me a new heart, Lord. Forgive me of my sins. Save me. Put in me a deep faith, Lord, that I would walk a walk worthy of you and that I'd glorify your name. Man, if you just prayed that in your heart, even in the most simple way that you could, repeat after me. Man, just know today that that your name has been written in the Lamb's book of life. And you're saved and you're going to heaven. And much more than that, and, and, and on top of that, rather, man, you're saved from the bondage of the sin of this world. You're a new creation in Christ now. And we just rejoice with you if you prayed that out in your heart. But maybe just even today, just... The next step of of a faith in a believer's life, man, you just, you want more. You want the Lord to give you more faith. Just be bold today and and allow us to participate in coming alongside of you and praying for you and, and watching what the Lord does. It's not up to us to do the healing. It's just up to us to ask, whether that's marital healing or spiritual healing, whatever. It's not up to us to do the work. It's just up to us to ask. It's not an issue as if the Lord is is willing or able. He is so able today. Don't be ashamed, man. Come and get prayer as Stuart just leads us in the last song.